What's up, podcast listeners? This is your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and this episode is a behemoth. And I am so excited to share this podcast with you because I got to interview one of my biggest idols and mentors in the entire industry, Dr. Stuart McGill. If you don't know who he is, you are missing out on one of the best presenters in the world, researchers in the world, and a person who just understands the spine so well that he's helped so many people get out of back pain, and he's my go-to resource when it comes to any back pain stuff. And not even in the coaching world, he has such a huge influence in the medical field, from chiropractors to physiotherapists to doctors, you name it. He is the number one go-to source for anything to do with the spine, and I am humbled to have him on my show. It's like literally me interviewing a celebrity. It's the most surreal experience I've had in my entire life. So without further ado, here is Dr. Stuart McGill. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your lovely host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me for the first time, a living legend, Dr. Stuart McGill. Say hello. Oh, good afternoon, Rafael. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, yeah, like uh, before we hit the record and button. I, know, I do know where Langley is, not only <laughs> Vancouver. <laughs> yeah, like before we started recording, we were just chatting about where I'm from, and I always tell all my guests, I'm, I always say Vancouver because they never know where Langley is. And if they're from America, they automatically think of Vancouver, Washington. And I'm like, nope, not even close. <laughs> um, so yeah, like, because I've had you, this is the first time I've had you on my show, I always kind of like to do like a little rough summary of an intro of who you are, what you do, and how did you get into what you do today? All right. Well, uh, I'm a retired professor. I was a professor at University of Waterloo for 32 years. Uh, I started the lab at that time with one simple question, how does the spine work? And from that, as we began to understand the answer to that question, we then branched out into questions like, what are the mechanisms leading to back pain? Uh, how's the uh, best way to assess the mechanism of that pain and then come up with an appropriate rehab strategy. And then we got into um, high performance optimization, which was really athletics. How do you get the best performance out of a person's back? About 20 years ago, I was getting more and more requests to see patients. I never asked to see a patient. They just kept asking, and and various clinicians and, and coaches would say, well, would you see our stubborn patient? What you just wrote about or published um, was it seems to be very relevant to a difficult case that we have right now. Would you see the patient? And slowly I became a uh, clinician. I would get invited to different medical schools and different uh, high-level sports programs and whatnot and became much more comfortable in uh, seeing patients. Uh, then we opened up the clinic at the university 
we started with a two-hour appointment time, and, and other people said, well, you're crazy, a two-hour appointment for a back pain patient? Because with what we had learned about probing a patient to really get at a detailed and precise understanding of their pain mechanism, it took us two hours. Well, we did that for a couple of years, and I changed it to three hours. So we then learned to really get a good understanding, to be able to show a person what their precise pain triggers are and create a strategy to avoid them, to allow pain desensitization, and then rebuild their foundation once again to be pain-free in whatever activity it was uh, in their goal. So that was the story of my uh, uh, career at the university. As I said, I retired a couple of years ago, and now I have a clinic uh, at my home where I just see uh, one or two patients one or two days a week, but they're all uh, special patients, uh, people who are really struggling. They've been to a dozen, a dozen or so different clinicians, and they either have got worse or they certainly haven't got better. So that's uh, the summary of it. <laughs> nice. But I'm like really curious about is like what got you into the spine in the first place? Like what made you so passionate about learning about what the spine does? Well, it was all uh, just dumb luck and random events in a way. Uh, I, I was never really meant to go to university. But it was my interest in uh, athletics and playing sport that I even went to university in the first place. But uh, then I uh, got interested in, in biomechanics and I did a master's degree in, uh, well, it was in, in French at University of Ottawa. The program was Kinanthropologie, which translates to kinanthro to, to uh, kinesiology and anthropology. However, my... Uh, a degree was in biomechanics. And then I was playing hockey with the professor's team at University of Ottawa. And we this was as a master's student, and we played the University of Waterloo. And I, I met a professor uh, after the game because the two teams would come together and have beers in the dressing room. You see how random life can be. And he invited me to Waterloo to, to come and use some of his instrumentation that I needed for my thesis at the time. And then, long story short, I ended up doing my uh, PhD with him in spine biomechanics. So it just uh, went on from there. And uh, it, really life for me was just random events if you asked me 20 or 30 years ago what my career path was going to be i couldn't have answered that i had no idea Jeez. i'm still absolutely amazed at uh where, where i am right now i never would have predicted it wow okay and now the other thing i'm kind of curious about is like your three hour initial appointment like what are some things that take a lot of time to kind of really dissect because like I work in a clinic with a chiropractor and usually a full initial is an hour so I can only imagine what you're asking to really figure out the root cause of pain 
Well, it begins with an interview, and that interview is set up very strategically. We, we go into a room where I sit at 45 degrees to the person, uh, for, so I'm at one side of them, and the, and the other side is a picture window with a forest. Uh, in front of them is a fireplace. This is all designed to get them to relax, and I, I don't say much. I welcome them, and I say, well, tell me why you're here. Now, with that open-ended approach, I learn a lot of things. Um, I learn about their passions. I learn about their habits and some of the things that are contributing to their inability to become pain-free. Uh, I might perform clandestine tests where I'll say, oh, do you mind handing me that backpack? It was just simply to watch them move and watch the stress accumulate in different parts of their body and whether that is part of the reason why they have pain. Um, and then I ask them to tell me if they haven't in their narrative told me what makes it better, what makes it worse about the character of the pain. Is it worse in the morning? Is it neurally pins and needle type and thing? Is it a very boring central pain, um, radiating, etc.? Um, and then I want to know about their current training program. Uh, some of the therapies that they've tried in the past that have failed or made them worse. So I, I sometimes by that point I'm I've got a pretty good understanding of of their their pain just by listening to that story. Uh, some people tell me about uh, abusive situations uh, that uh, is conspiring with all the mechanical things to uh, cause pain. Uh, some people might tell me about their job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then I take them downstairs to the clinic side of things, and I do provocative testing. I provoke the things that I suspect are pain generators, and I see if, in fact, they are causing pain. And then I explore alternatives. Or is there any other alternative explanations? For example, the patient I saw this morning had extensor-driven pain, and uh, they were telling me, oh, how their facets are sore, and some clinicians have told them that the pain is from their facet joints and whatnot. Well, I tested and loaded their facets, and they didn't cause uh, any pain whatsoever. Um, they had a disc bulge, and from their history, they told me they'd gone to a clinic that told them to do floppy push-ups, which are laying on your tummy and extending the spine over and over. And then when I looked at the MRI images, the neural arch, the lamina in the back of their spines were lit up with edema. They had heavy bone bruising. So the, the sloppy push-ups had actually bruised their bones. So it was a bone bruise that was causing central pain when they went into that position. Um, so there's an example where they were going for the wrong thing because someone thought extensor-driven pain was most likely facets, but they didn't have the skill set to test to see if, in fact, they were or what is the alternate. Then I summarize for the patient, if I can, with precision, exactly what the pain generators are. So this person this morning had a open fissured disc bulge, which meant it applied pressure to the sciatic root when they sat, but the pressure went away when they stood and walked. Um, there was also 
underhooking the nerve root, which meant if they looked up and extended their neck, the spinal cord drifted caudally down into the underhook, and that replicated what they thought were SI joint pain. It wasn't SI joint pain at all. It was referred from the sciatic root based on neural tension and an underhook, underhooking bulge. So that's how precise we can get uh, in uh, most of the time, but not every time. Uh, then I showed them movement strategies to move in a way that didn't cause pain. Now we're on the way to pain desensitization. But bone pain and edema in bone, that takes a long time to desensitize. Uh, it might take anywhere from several weeks to uh, three or four, maybe five months if the bone bruise is really uh, easily triggered. But that will wind down. I've never met a person yet who hasn't been able to wind down that kind of uh, pain sensitivity. Uh, then I gave them exercises to build the foundation within their current tolerance together with a program looking forward, how we can get the nerves to flow around the disc bulge and a strategy to slowly uh, reduce the size of the disc bulge as well. So that took three hours as an example. Wow, okay, yeah, that's very detailed. And now I'm kind of curious of like your opinion why a lot of clinicians kind of miss those things. Like, Do you think it's because they're not spending enough time to really figure out what's going on? Or are they not, you know, spending enough time on teaching the patient how to do pain-free movement and have that as part of their like routine on a daily basis to get better? First, I don't think clinicians know how to perform a thorough assessment. Okay. I, I don't think very many have those skills at all. We, we, we teach a, an entire course on master clinician assessment of back pain. Uh, that's the first reason, and uh, very few are able to then see what it is in the person's life that is causing the accumulated stress and the uh, pain sensitivity in specific tissues, and they may or may not know how to coach a strategy that avoids those pain triggers. So, see, most clinicians are paid to perform procedures, be it dry needling, be it a physical therapy approach, be it a manipulation, be it a surgery or whatever. They're paid for procedures. They're not paid to do a very, very thorough assessment to create efficacy. The only thing that matters to me is efficacy. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm paid to cure back pain. And if I, I didn't know would ever come to see me, I don't advertise, uh, I don't hold out a shingle, or people come to get their back better. Yeah, yeah, because I think most chiros, at least like the older ones that I've seen in my area, they kind of just try to get through as many patients as possible within the hour and kind of just you know, adjust this one, adjust that one, and it's kind of like almost like a machine where I think a lot of them are kind of leaving a lot of good stuff on the table where if they spent a little bit more time with them, the person can actually start feeling better. Are you saying they're not motivated to get them better? That would um, be up in their financial interest? Maybe, because like, I find that a lot of chiros kind of have a lot of freedom of how they want to run their business and the ones I've seen that you know have the seven to ten minute appointments kind of almost seem more money driven than actually spending enough time to really figure out what's going on whereas I'm kind of seeing a new shift of like newer chiros coming out of school where they want to spend longer with the patient because they 
almost just feel the need to help people. But I don't know, maybe if that's going to change, you know, 10 or 20 years down the road. But it just seems that the chiros that spend less time, they're not really getting the person better. And they, that patient always kind of just comes back for the, you know, the neck adjustment, the low back adjustment to feel better temporarily. Well, I think your perceptions are right on. Uh, we have quite a few uh, chiropractors who are master clinicians in the McGill method, and we refer patients around the world to them. They're located around the world. As I said, uh, quite a number of them are uh, chiropractors, but they have many tools in their uh, toolbox. We've taught them how to do a very masterful clinician to reach a, a precise understanding of the pain mechanism, and uh, they have enough tools that they know which one to pull out of their toolbox. You know, if you have an unstable joint, say you've had a disc bulge, a bit of a flatter disc, it will experience micro-movements. It's like letting air out of your car tire. The tire bulges and it's a bit sloppy on the road. Well, this happens to people's uh, spinal joints. And uh, it, would, it makes zero sense at all to manipulate that and give it more mobility when in fact it needs stiffness for stability to engineer out the pain triggering uh, micro movements, which are easily, easy, quite easily to detect on a thorough assessment. No, definitely. Um, so I kind of want to get into the questions I sent you that we prepared because I feel like I don't think we're going to get through all of them because you just love to talk and you're like one of the best guests ever where, you know, you ask one question and you go off for like 10 minutes straight. But um, I kind of wanted to bring up the whole idea of surgery because I feel, especially in the general population, when they get to that point where nothing is getting better, they always kind of look down the surgery route and there's so many different procedures out there and I kind of just want to get your opinion on going down the surgery route and what you know, procedures are out there and, you know, what are the risks and things like that? Okay, well, sorry for my long answers, but <laughs> your questions deserve very thorough yeah. responses. And the whole uh, question of whether a person should have surgery, it requires a really systematic approach to reach a, a decision. This is a big life-altering uh, experience. And, and at the end of the day, the surgeon has to be able to cut the pain out with a knife. That's the bottom line. So I wrote uh, in my last book, which I wrote for the lay public called Back Mechanic, I have an entire chapter to guide this systematic uh, decision approach. Uh, so you've already pointed out, people who consider surgery think they have explored all conservative approaches. They'll say to you, oh, well, I've tried chiropractic, I've tried physical therapy, I've tried this and that. Well, what was physical therapy? The chances are they never had a thorough assessment in physical therapy and the therapist gave them floppy push-ups and uh, wobbling on a gym ball or something like that. It had no chance to address very precisely their um, back pain, but the person didn't know that. The person thought they had matched uh, therapy. So um, as the assessment always shows what the mechanism of pain is, we can then guide the person to know whether they truly are a low-risk surgical case. No one wants to take high-risk surgery risks if, uh, if they don't need to. 
So uh, interestingly, many surgeons fail to do a precise and thorough assessment as well. They simply look at the MR scan. In fact, there are websites where you can send in your scans and they will declare whether they can cut your pain out or not. I can't understand this because the MRI scan shows the full life history and anatomy changes due to their full life on that scan. How does the surgeon know if the feature they're looking at is a recent wound that's causing pain or an old scar that no longer causes pain anymore? You know, I can see scars on my face and in your hands and whatnot, and uh, they don't hurt one little bit, but they sure did at the time you you did it. So I, I don't understand, well, I think people should run the other way if they go in and the first thing the surgeon does is not take a history, but they put their scans up on the view box and declare whether they can cut their pain out. They have to do a, a thorough uh, assessment to determine uh, the surgical target and what te technique they're going to use. Um, but the next thing is this. Surgery works on a lot of people because it's forced rest. Can you consider a CrossFit athlete or a stay-at-home mom who goes to the gym every day, and she'll tell you in the interview, I have to go and ride the elliptical for 30 minutes every day. It's my stress reliever, and if I don't do it, I'm going to murder my husband. You, you may have heard a few patients like this. They are exercise addicts. They will not get rid of their back pain as long as they're addicted to exercise. What the surgery does is it forces them to break the addiction, and they must rest. So we perform what we call virtual surgery. We pretend they had surgery and they start a recovery as if they had, say, uh, a microdiscectomy or a laminectomy or some procedure like that. Do you know that 95% of them will recover and not need surgery? Jeez. I've measured that and I can stand by that. So 95% of the people that we see who have been told they needed surgery and we followed up with every patient who ever came to the clinic, if they fit that category, 95% of them uh, avoided uh, surgery. However, at the end of the day, there are some people who will do well with surgery. We know the risk is low. Well, how do you know? If the surgery is targeted at a single level, so say they have a single level disc bulge trapping a nerve root, they've identified the nerve root, they know exactly that it's that nerve root and not any other. Um, and, uh, well, that that's generally... A, a less risk kind of surgery. But when a surgeon comes in and says, oh, you need a three-level fusion, we're going to put in an artificial disc. In other words, the more the hardware that's put in, the less chance of a successful outcome. But the surgeons say to patients, oh, I have a 95% success rate. But the people don't say, well, could you qualify what a successful surgery is? For most surgeons, that means the patient is still living after a couple of weeks and the pain is somewhat less, but they're still on pain meds by that point. Do they do a six-month follow-up and a one-year follow-up to find out how successful they truly were? I don't know of very many. I could probably count on one hand who do long-term uh, follow-up. Then the uh, patient should ask the uh, surgeon, well, what is the rehab program? Are you going to show me what caused this thing you're going to operate on and make sure I don't get it back in the future? And if the surgeon can't do that, I would avoid the surgeon as well. 
Um, but, you know, there are some patients that, uh, what's the name of your show? Uh, Cut the Shit, Get Fit. <laughs> okay, what I was going to say was shit happens, so I thought I'm going to let you say the word first, so it's legal for me to say it. Yeah. Shit happens. So say a person has a Tarloff cyst on a femoral nerve root. There you go. We know what is dragging every time they sit down in the car or uh, perform a specific movement, that Tarloff cyst pulls on the nerve. Uh, shit happens. I, there's not a hell of a lot I can do to uh, remove that. Well, there are some surgical procedures to deflate the Tarloff cyst. Very rarely does it work. However, uh, there's a surgeon that we use in Texas who has a technique where they wrap the nerve and wrap the uh, Tarloff cyst. And I, I know because I follow up with his patients, he has a very high success rate. So when we have something very specific, uh, and there is one example, surgery makes a lot of sense, but go find the surgeon who has the most efficacious uh, approach. All right. Fair enough. Um, the next thing I want to get into Sorry is... a long-winded no. answer, but could I give you a better answer in a shorter time? Probably not. No, like, that, it's great. Like, I love having guests like you where they really go in-depth because, like, the worst guess is, like, they give you a two-word answer and you just have to keep going with the, with the interview. But, um, yeah, the next thing I kind of want to get into is kind of talking about the mental health when it comes to recovering from say low back pain or SI joint pain because I've seen in the clinic that I work at people with you know high anxiety levels or dealing with depression and things like that it almost seems like their pain kind of lingers on a little bit longer and I'm kind of curious on your take on the topic too. Well context is everything and, and that can be a huge issue or it can be an iatrogenic issue. Can you imagine a person who's been told by their doctor they have uh, degenerative disc disease? So they hear that they have a degenerative disc disease. All they have is a flattened disc, but someone told them that. So no wonder they have high anxiety thinking that they're 25 years old with a degenerative disease. Isn't that a horrible thing to, to yeah. say to someone? Yeah. So, you know, that is caused by the clinician. That's iatrogenic. Um, but let's get back to chronic low-grade pain that disrupts your sleep. I've just given you the uh, World Health Organization definition of torture. Deprive someone of sleep and uh, give them low-grade chronic pain, and you will break them down mentally. But the question is how best to treat it. There are some clinicians who believe, well, I'm going to use cognitive behavioral therapy to, to, to treat their depression and anxiety. Uh, and they'll say, well, it doesn't matter how you move. Your posture doesn't matter. I'm just going to treat you and tell you it's okay to keep moving. We find that many, at least the patients that we go, uh, that we see, have already been that route, and they're the failures, and they have even more anxiety. They cannot fathom that when they bend forward and flush the toilet, why there's a chance that someone will come out of the sky and shove a knife in their back. No one has shown them that they have a very active, open-fissured disc, and when they bend forward, even to flush the toilet like that, that's the mechanism that allows the fissure to open up and uh, th th some nuclear material to touch a nerve root. 
Um, but when we show them with precision what their pain mechanism is and then how to engineer a strategy around it to bulletproof themselves, now they're empowered. They are fully in control and they get confidence through movement competence. Did you follow the logic? Yeah. Now their anxiety goes. So if you want to give someone uh, relief from anxiety, shift the locus of control to them. And uh, that's precisely what we do. And then the next time they have pain, they're able to say, ah, I know why I got pain. It wasn't random. It was I violated the principle. Now I paid the price by getting pain. So I learned pain is now a teacher. And they become less victimized by this random thunderbolt that comes down and strikes them into pain. It's no longer random, and uh, it's very precise and specific. So you've now empowered them, and their anxiety goes away. So the, the, the practice of spine hygiene is, uh, is uh, uh, really, really important. And, you know, I know there are those who say posture doesn't matter, but, again, it's... It's context-specific. The more, shall we say, uh, fragile their back is, uh, the more important the way you move is. Or if you're going to deadlift 1,000 pounds, you better have good form. There's no excuse. You get, you get hurt when you have bad form with heavy loads or high speed. So technique is everything. Um, but uh, as I said, we, we take away the, the, this victimization uh, feeling that they have. Why me? We in, instead, we empower them with a strategy to avoid the pain. Now, kind of off topic, but still on a topic of pain, do you ever go over like a nutrition with your patients through that giant intake? Like, because I've seen a lot of times people that have poor diets, it almost seems they take a little bit longer to recover from an injury too. So I'm kind of curious if you ever bring up nutrition and better eating. Uh, I have to say that yes, sometimes. Okay. If they are uh, uh, thin and frail and undernourished, that will become a topic of conversation. Uh, conversely, if they're the opposite, they are impeded by their weight, then the nutrition will uh, come a topic uh, as well. Uh, obviously, when I'm dealing with high-performance athletes, all kinds of supplements might uh, come into the equation as well. Okay, fair enough. Um, so the next thing I wanted to go into is also your opinion on different treatment modalities because there's so much stuff out there nowadays from, you know, IMS dry needling, acupuncture, cupping, rock tape, instrument assisted, and I'm just kind of curious of your opinion on those modalities. Well... Uh, I'll start with two words. It depends. And for such a question like that, I would have to uh, look at both sides of the coin, play, take both perspectives. So um, as I said, we don't perform those procedures. Uh, what we do is we assess the cause and then try and eliminate it. No procedure does that. It simply treats what the outward pain or dysfunction appears to be, but it doesn't address the cause. So obviously the key is to address the cause so that these procedures aren't needed in the future. That's how I would answer that on one side. But now I'm going to take the other side. Say we've done our very best for a person who's uh, quite frail, 
And uh, it doesn't take much to trigger their pain through to a high-performance athlete who is going for uh, some elite performance. It might be on the tennis tour, the golf tour, might be in uh, a sport like weightlifting. It might be in uh, fighting, for example, being a cage fighter. Uh, we give them strategies to avoid the cause. However, um, if some rock tape around patellar tendon and into the muscle allows them to perform with a 2% enhancement, that's a good idea. That's the difference between becoming first and 10th. To modulate uh, training intensity or performance, uh, I, uh, I will do that. So I have quite a cadre of uh, clinicians who perform procedures who I send uh, athletes to. I mean, for example, uh, if you're a Canadian sprinter, you will know Dr. Bell. Dr. Larry Bell in uh, Aurelia, who isn't too far from me, you can hang out at his clinic and you'll see sprinters come in from around the world. Why? He pulls out a little bit more speed from them with, with, with some of the procedures that we're talking about. So there's uh, a good example. I had uh, a double Olympian, summer and winter uh, Olympics. Uh, I was able to uh, reduce, uh, well, I, I was able to eliminate the mechanism of their back pain. However, they still had a residual reverberation in quadratus lumborum that I didn't have the skills to deal with. I sent them off to a soft tissue guru, and in three treatments, it was gone. So these are all examples. Uh, if, if all the person does is procedures, I will have a problem with that. However, if they can eliminate the cause and get the big picture right, uh, sometimes this fine-tuning makes all the difference, as I said, between first and tenth, or first and being on the disabled list. Yeah. Yeah, like at the clinic here, we tend to use a lot of rock tape for our CrossFitters, because it's really hard to tell them to kind of take a step back with the amount of volume they do, but the moment we place a tape on whatever's kind of their area that's giving them heck, like they almost feel like they're invincible. And I almost think it's like a psychosocial thing that you place a piece of tape on them, now they feel invincible to go into their next, you know, wad or whatever competition they're doing. So it's kind of interesting seeing like, you know, the general population trying tape for the first time. And, you know, sometimes they're like, ah, oh, it didn't really make a difference. Sometimes it does make a difference. But for some reason, the CrossFitter community, like you slap some tape on them and they just feel invincible. <laughs> Well, there's, uh, they're a very special community. I admire them a lot. Uh, there's probably a few more uh, issues going on there. For example, have you ever met a type B laid-back personality at CrossFit? No. No, that's no. selected to, to create, to, to get a very uh, hard-driving A type personality and uh there's there's they, they pay attention they're uh anyway i'll i'll leave it at that but th there's certainly a whole personality profile around that uh, athletic uh, group but uh, isn't it interesting how behaviors and injuries cluster around specific sports they cluster around specific sports because sports because of the mental demands and toughnesses 
and the uh, training regimens, like certainly the body types cluster around uh, something like CrossFit or, you know, you won't find a, a horse jockey in the NBA, uh, to use a very extreme example. But uh, all of these things form patterns, and when you understand the patterns, you, you get better at converging on uh, efficacy. Now, the fact that I brought up CrossFit, I did get a question from the chiropractor that I work with because we see so many CrossFitters, and they all kind of have the same kind of qualities of being really posterior chain dominant and all kind of have the same low back pain where it's almost in like, like that TL junction. And most recently, the Cairo that I work with and I went to the Perform Better Summit in Long Beach, and they had a Cairo in there that works primarily with a lot of extension-based athletes. And he was kind of talking about this idea of like giving them a little bit more flexion-based exercise because they're constantly doing things like deadlifts, squats, Olympic lifts, always going into that extension pattern. And I was kind of thinking like maybe the CrossFit population would need some sort of flexion-based like cat cows and things like that or just getting you know their spine to go into flexion so i'm kind of curious on your take on that well you're thinking kinematics i think you should be thinking kinetics in other words uh if you do a deadlift or a, a power clean or something like that there's no question that's a heavy challenge to the posterior chain, but that's not going to be uh, balanced out by doing a cat-cow. That's passive. There's no challenge there. However, a front plank, uh, and we can load that, uh, would create a similar load challenge to the front. And uh, to create a, what I call a core of iron is usually a pretty good uh, thing to do, particularly in the CrossFit uh, community. So that's balancing up the uh, uh, extensors with the lateral musculature and the anterior musculature in the torso. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, the CrossFitters, when we measure the balance of those, it's not as extensor dominant as you might think. Uh, it may also be that the mechanism of their pain is too much loaded motion in their spine. So are you going to add more loaded motion only in the opposite direction? I think you'll find better efficacy through isometric approaches to creating that core of iron than uh, treating the spine more like the ball and socket joint. Okay, fair enough. See, we get an argument there about tissue adaptation. You train to create tissue adaptation to be more resilient to the rigors of the sport. The thing about CrossFit is it is a lot of loaded spine motion. Do you really want more in your training? They get enough of that in the sport. Uh, it may be better to create more uh, stiffness and toughness in the collagen and the and the gooey stuff. It's called ground substance that holds the uh, fibers together. That will make them more resilient to disc bulges. I mean, basically, the CrossFit community, the number one thing uh, or mechanism of their back pain are disc bulges, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how, what, what, what's causing the disc bulges? Loaded spine motion. So I'd be a little careful of balancing it off with uh, flexion motion. However, I would certainly use flexion challenges. 
So what, what would be like the flexion, like an example of a flexion uh, challenge? Uh, front plank front, would be okay. the beginning yeah, yeah. of uh, of of that certain forms of dead bugs. But if yeah. you want a hundred percent neural drive to the abdominals, start in a push-up position and walk your hands out mm. and hold your hands in a bridge. Then go to one arm. Now, if you think you're tough, try that. That's I've measured it. That's a hundred percent neural drive to the abdominals. If you do sit-ups and some of those. Uh, uh, I forget what they're called. Is it GDH? No, uh, the the type of sit up that the CrossFitters do. They're not as extensor driven as as you think. Uh, measure it, and uh, of course uh, that will that will give you the answer. But um, we, we can drive and challenge the abdominals 100 percent. Okay. Um, so I also got a couple questions on Instagram that I kind of want to get into. Um, the first one is, interested in how pain is not always a result of any structural or physiological problem, but possibly caused by psychosocial aspects. Ask him his current take on the mind-body connection and its impact on a person's back pain. All right. Well, the mind-body connection, first of all, is huge. However, are you going to think yourself into pain originally? Uh, that's very, very rare. Uh, much more is the case. There is actual existing problems, physical problems, and then the person will obsess and magnify, etc. It's not the other way around. Okay, fair enough. Because um, this question, is I mean, I can I can give you examples sure. of where clinicians say, "Oh, well, there's no evidence of structural abnormality," and I look at the, uh, I do an assessment, and then I look at the MRIs, and there's enormous structural abnormality, but the average radiologist misses it. They have no idea that the radiology uh, scans that they just viewed was an Olympic gold medal in weightlifting, or whether the person was a couch potato or an operator of, of a computer at, uh, you know, <laughs> some office office somewhere. They have no idea. Um, however, uh, I've done quite a number of studies. I think of the last NHL hockey strike where, what was that, about seven or eight years ago? Yeah. Uh, remember when the players went on strike for half a year? Mm -hmm. The young ones went to Europe uh, to, to play and continue making money. The older ones worked to heal their bodies. So, you know, I've got some colleagues who are neck and shoulder specialists, and I saw quite a number of them for their low back issues. They came to me, say they played in the NHL 13 years. They came to me with their scans over those 13 years. I knew how many goals they scored every single year. I knew how many games they played. Uh, and then how many games they had uh, uh, were, you know, they were unable to play because of their back. I knew how they trained. I had it all. It was a fabulous study. Now, don't tell me that tissue damage doesn't occur. I watched the tissue damage occur over those 13 years. I saw the pain profiles change. I saw their production in terms of goals change and uh, how many games they were able to play. And yet at the end, a radiologist would look at their scans and be clueless as to whether uh, they were in pain or not. So until you go to that level of Watching these things evolve over time, uh, I don't know if I believe uh, people who say, oh, well, there's there's pain in the absence of structural damage. Uh, 
you know, we, we had our tissue lab and we spent years taking virgin spines, cadaver spines, and creating the injuries. Uh, they don't show on x-ray. Sometimes they don't even show on MRI. But when you micro-dissect them, you will see massive damage. So there's uh, some perspectives on that claim that uh, there's a complete absence of damage. Okay, fair enough. Um, I kind of have a follow-up question on that, only because the person who posted that is from a yoga studio. And most recently, like, um, at the gym I work at, we also have a yoga studio attached to it. And a lot of the yogis are coming to the gym side and you know, kind of experiencing lifting for the very first time in their lives. And all of them kind of have the same issue when they start doing barbell deadlifts, all of their low backs are starting to flare up. And I've been trying to figure out why, and I don't know if this is right or if I'm like completely off the rails on this one, but I'm wondering because of how their bodies adapted to the sport of yoga, they just tend to extend with their low back first compared to their hips when it comes to like the up phase and the deadlift. And I'm kind of curious if you have any like, ideas to why maybe a yogi would not be best equipped to like the gym setting right off the bat well i agree with you i i would just have some additional comments to make um to be a yoga master is the kiss of death to deadlift yeah (laughs) because the you have to organize stiffness in your back if you're going to carry a lot of weight down it otherwise it'll be crushed see the spine is a bendy rod So if you want to be a yoga master, that's fabulous, but stay a yoga master. Uh, In order to become mobile in the spine, you have to adapt a very uh, flexible spine, which means the collagen fibers that form the disc, because they're not a ball and socket joint, they're collagen fibers held together by ground substance. You practice end range of motion, and it will become more flexible. However... It became flexible because the ground substance between the collagen fibers became more viscous. So now when you deadlift and you don't have perfect form, uh, loading a bent disc causes the nucleus, which is now under high pressure in the yogi, to seep through between the layers of the collagen, and eventually it'll seep through and form a disc bulge. So, you know, you you used the perfect word when you said adaptation. You adapt your body for specific things, but you cannot adapt your body to be stiff and be a power lifter to take the extreme of a yogi. I mean, those boys have problems scratching their ear. They're they're so stiff. But that is what the adaptation is that allow them to put basically a car on their back. You put a car on the back of a yogi and they'll fold up and, and collapse and be crushed. So do you see how you can't have it both ways? Yeah. But definitely. I don't know what a trainer is thinking by giving a, a yogi a deadlift. That that's yeah. that's just mismatch of uh, athleticisms. If the yogi wants to be strong, uh, they should start off with uh, things like uh, bird dogs and and uh, planks and that kind of thing, and then get into a light load carriage, things like uh, suitcase carries and things like that. But to pick up a barbell off the ground when you're a yogi, it's so polar opposite to what their body is adapted to do, they're asking for trouble. Yeah, I would agree with you. Like, because... Eventually, the yogis that I'm, like, thinking about asking this question, they all ended up wanting to train with me, and I was like, 
just like anybody, like I want to take you through the foundations before I give you something a little bit more aggressive, like a barbell deadlift. And after you know a couple months of doing the things that you actually mentioned, um, no more back pain when they're trying to do deadlifts, which is great. But yeah, like polar polar opposites. Well, you're very wise. Thank when you. you get a person to change athleticisms, you start by getting the movements right first. And then when you have perfect movements in whatever the new uh, sport that you're trying to adapt for, then you can start with load and speed. But you got to get the movements right first. Oh, 100%. Um... But if it's a folded up yogi spine and a deadlift, uh, you know where they're headed. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so the next one is, um, uh, how can one work on remapping the brain to not consistently search for the pain? Because it was a follow-up question to that last one. Oh, that's a huge, yeah, that's a huge question. Yeah. That's a fabulous question, actually. There are some people who have the personality. Uh, you show them how to reduce their pain sensitivity, and they do. And yet they still come in every day. Oh, uh, I'll say, how's your pain? And, and, and they have to think about it and they have to search for it. And I said, no, if, if, if you can't answer the question, the answer is you don't have pain. <laughs> so, you know, you're searching for it. And, and uh, th- that was how they defined themselves. So it's a great question that I don't even know the answer to. Uh, I would work with the person as an individual and decide whether uh, give them uh, something that's very joyful in their life to do that they completely forget about their pain or uh, again, uh, depending on their personality, I don't know how I would go about that, but if we had the person in front of us, um, sometimes I might have to shock them a little bit and, and, and really show them, look, you don't have pain um, and I'll, I'll maybe get a bit rough with them and uh, do something with them to show them how robust they are. And then it finally hits home to them. Wow, when I follow the rules, I am robust. I'm, I'm liberated and empowered. Um, but again, in, in, until I had the person in front of me, uh, I, 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 I don't know. Oh, fair enough. Um, the next one is... Uh, in regards to the healing and desensitizing timeline, what variables, aside from correctly identifying and removing your individual pain triggers, uh, account for the varying timeline to recovery from back injury and or neurological sy- uh, symptoms? Well, that's another fabulous question because the literature is so confusing here. There are uh, compensation boards, for example, the compensation board where you're from in BC. I don't know if it's still this way, but years ago they used to say if you had back pain after six weeks of their program, uh, the pain must be in your head because tissues heal within six weeks. But the studies that showed this were of rodent muscle. So when you damage a rodent's muscle, it it heals within six weeks and becomes functional and non-painful again. That wasn't on back tissues. I'm going to give you an example now. Say you have an M-plate fracture from deadlifting. Maybe it hurts, maybe it doesn't. But the disc now loses a little bit of height and its ability to contain the nuclear pressure inside the disc when you're doing the next deadlift. 
uh, then slowly over time as the disc flattens, it starts to bulge a little bit. Now, as the disc loses height, the facet joints are carrying a bit more load. The physical therapist gives them, because they have a disc bulge, floppy push-ups. Now they start grinding up the facet joints that are already taking too much load because the disc is flattened. Now, in two years down the road, you've, you, being the therapist, has created an extension-intolerant facet patient. So do you see the cascade? It's not like breaking your leg. When you damage, uh, even at the micro level, the spinal joint, it kicks off a cascade that can last for years. So I, I gave the example of a bone bruise uh, at the beginning of the podcast in the person's lamina. I told them as they left the door that bone bruise today typically takes three to four to five months to wind down that bone sensitivity. Um, when you get edema in the vertebral body from an implant fracture, that can be painful for a year to a year and a half. That's well documented in Bill Morgan's book on uh, MRI function. Uh, what is it called now? MRI of the lumbar spine. There's a word in front of that, and I forget. But it's a fabulous uh, MRI interpretive guide. Um, nerve pain, sometimes you can take it away in a matter of two or three minutes. If you can find uh, a posture, it might be prone lying, for example, for a patient and uh, show them a few breathing exercises where they can change the subtle curve on their back and vacuum in the disc bulge. If it's dynamic, sometimes they can be vacuumed in quite quickly, and they stand up and all the radiating symptoms are gone. So there's a resolution that could take three minutes. So do you see how it's a fabulous question you're asking, uh, but I'm giving you some scenarios with the cascade that goes on uh, that it could take a few minutes I've had some people who completely eliminated their back pain and, and never got it again through through their understanding of what the trigger was and the avoidance of the trigger. Others take time to settle it down. Others might have a nerve root adhesion from post-surgical scarring. That's called arachnoiditis. That's a terrible thing to have and, and committed to life of, of having very substantial radiating pain. We'll, we'll put that in the shit happens category, given the name of your podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe for one of the last questions, because we're coming up to our time here, I'm kind of curious myself, like, what is the one question you always get that you feel like you've been, you know, answering for years? And then what is the one question you wish people asked you? Well, I don't know the answer to the first question. Okay, fair enough. Uh, if a person asks a question, you have to honor that. And, uh, you know, I, I can't dismiss it or wish anything, whether they ask it or not. They've asked it honestly because they're in pain. So I, I can't answer that one. Mm -hmm. um, what do I wish they would ask? Um, again, I sometimes have to direct a person uh, they'll tell me about all of these things that they do, and they ask me to basically wave a wand over them when their question should be, can you give me a precise understanding of my back pain, and then can you give me a strategy matched to that to wind down the pain and then show me what I need to become pain-free and back to enjoying life again? Okay. And what about a question you wish coaches would ask you? 
Well, again, are they a coach of an individual athlete and we have a very specific case and strategy to follow, or are they responsible for a team? Is the team a bunch of kids, or is the team uh, going to the Olympics, or are they a professional team in a league, or are they, uh, you know, an MMA team out of a a gym? Uh, I'd have to know. For sure. Uh, Yeah, but uh, generally speaking, uh, volume of training is important. Proper rest is important. Uh, good form is important. Uh, in terms of the people I see with back pain, and then building an appropriate torso or core. I mean, I hate the word core, but it's I, I can't really think of a better word. Do they have a core that's up to the task for the sport and the training that they have to uh partake in awesome um so maybe for the very last question if people wanted to find out more about you and what you do what kind of resources do you have from your website to your books or anything else you want to throw out there this is your time to shine right now well all of our approaches are detailed in my books for the lay public with back pain Uh, who can do a self-assessment of their pain and then start on a strategy to wind it down for them, I wrote Back Mechanic. It's available on Amazon, and it's also on our website called backfitpro.com. If they're a coach, uh, I wrote Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. So that's for the athlete and the coach, or just the savvy savvy lay public who want to uh, train to better performance. For clinicians, that was the first book I ever wrote 20 years ago. That's called Low Back Disorders, and it describes how the spine works, how it becomes injured, thoughts on uh, preventing or reducing the risk of pain, thoughts on beginning rehab, uh, etc. And I, my most recent book I wrote with Brian Carroll. Uh, Brian uh, held the world record in squatting. It sounds like a funny event, but it was one of the powerlifting events. In two different weight categories, he came to me with a horrific injury. And we ended up writing a book together of how he recovered from a split sacrum, massive disc herniation, and a really heavily damaged L5. And... Uh, uh, it, it demonstrated the power of mechanostimulation to adapt those tissues over the following two years and to prove that it worked. He came back and won the Arnold's powerlifting competition the, the, the next two years. So uh, it was his story of uh, how he did it. But as we started to write, we enjoyed each other's company so much. We've become terrific friends. Uh, it now has become a manual for the strength athlete on how to recover their strength following back injury. Awesome. And if one wanted to follow you on any kind of social media or your website, what would that be? Well, I'm not a social media person. In fact, my daughter runs all of that, and they tell me she does a good job. So we have an Instagram. I believe it's BackFit Pro. Yeah. And uh, we are, we're also on Facebook for BackFit Pro. But my whole take on that is uh, we have to deliver content. So I'll, I'll give her content. And somehow she puts it on how, I don't know. <laughs> But uh, I honestly, I, I I don't really look at it myself. Oh, fair enough. But 
I'm, I'm far, uh, you know what's so interesting? I do see the odd conversation on Facebook by people who claim to know things. I've never met a master of the craft who's on Facebook. They're all out being masters. So <laughs> I don't know if that gives you any thought on this, but I, I just don't have time for uh, computers. I've got too many people who are asking uh, very seriously to change their lives. Fair enough. Um, I just want to close this by thanking you so much for your time. Like this was literally like a dream come true for me, and hopefully my audience can see the benefit of just reading one of your books. But yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for all you do. All right, so that's gonna wrap it up with Dr. Stuart McGill. Hopefully you enjoyed that one as much as I did, and being as starstruck as I did. Uh, I highly recommend you check out his website, backfitpro.com. And if you are just a general population person interested in fitness, Back Mechanic is the number one go-to resource for me, helping patients and clients with their back pain. And just start reading everything this guy has ever written about back pain. You will learn so much and have a better understanding about anatomy and how your body functions and how to get better. Thank you for listening this episode feel free to reach out if you have any questions remember to share 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 this podcast with your friends and family give me five stars and let's spread this thing and give great information worldwide until next time you guys that's it for me